have the week off last week. I appreciate it. Um, before we get started today, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. Before we get started today, I just wanted to announce that um, a dear friend of mine and one of our garden worshipers who is here just about every week, Mike Grazini, uh, is with the Lord this morning. Um, and uh, we're going to have a memorial service for him next Saturday at 3 p.m. here in the campus center. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that. Mike was a dear friend. Uh, he was, uh, I think it's safe to say that the Nightlife Center would not exist today if it weren't for Mike. Uh, he did so much and sacrificed so much for it. And um, some of his family is here today. I just wanted to make sure that you as our garden family knows that. And if you would like to attend next Saturday at 3, we're going to have a memorial service here in this building. Um, it's been a long week with that in that regard. Um, but one of the things we're going to do today to help us in that respect is look at the Scripture. Um, we're continuing with our summer series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. He says, you know, Joe, I don't remember a whole lot of churches who have actually done a whole series on 2 Corinthians. And it's true. Some people will take parts of 2 Corinthians and preach it because there's some really cool catchphrases in there. Like old things are passed away, all things are become new. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far greater thing in eternity. There's nice little phrases, but very rarely it seems to people just take 2 Corinthians and teach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And that's what we're trying to do this summer. And we're up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. And today, the message is called Reconcilers. Reconcilers. I'm going to read the passage to you. You can follow along with me on the screen as I read it. This is chapter 5, verse 14 to 19. Here's what Paul writes. For the love of Christ controls us. Isn't that a scary phrase? Does, does anybody like to be controlled? For the love of Christ controls us. <clears throat> because we have concluded this. <clears throat> that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Talking about Jesus. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him in this way no longer. Therefore, and this is the catchphrase you've heard this said maybe many times, but we're going to break it down. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. You hear that? He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sin against them. I like that part. I don't like the being controlled part. But I like the part where my sins aren't counted against me, right? You see how that works. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So what we like to do in the garden is we like to take each passage and break it down into three different applications. First of all, the historical application of the passage. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? <clears throat> then after that, we can look at the theological part of the scripture. What about God? What did he do and why and how did he do it? And the reason that's important is because God never changes. And then after we understand the history and the theology, we can now look at the devotional application of a passage. What about me? What am I supposed to do? And what and how do I do it? 
So let's look at the history. I want to continue with this, and this is a little bit of a repeat <clears throat> over the last few weeks. But the Corinthian church was in conflict with their culture, their city. Remember what has been going on here. For a while there, there had, there had been these uprisings where people who were either people who were trying to make Christians worship like Jewish people again, or some people who weren't Christians, who were pagans, were trying to make Christians worship like them in immoral ways. And there was this conflict between the Corinthian church and the city, the area where they lived. It had been going on for quite some time. As a matter of fact, it is the reason that 1 Corinthians was written. Because the Corinthian church was trying very hard to reconcile themselves with their culture. The problem was they were doing it through compromise. And so Paul addresses now his biggest desire for this church, for the church in Corinth. Understand there had been conflict for years. Matter of fact, there had been conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, why are you guys abandoning the gospel of forgiveness and freedom where your sins aren't counted against you? You're now believing in teachings that say you have to work for honor with God. You have to work for grace. And we know it's not by grace, but through faith. Why are you abandoning this? Why are you abandoning me? I helped start this church. So there was conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. There was a conflict between the Corinthian church and the Judaizers. Those who said, you can't be Christian. You still have to worship like a Jewish person. You still have to go to the temple. You still have to sacrifice doves and animals. You have to give to the priests. You have to be religious. And not only religious, you have to be really good at religion. So there's conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. There's conflict between the Corinthian church and the Judaizers. There's conflict between the church and pagans. I'd mentioned to you early on, one of the things that was happening is you had Christians who were joining immoral worship sessions with pagans that included sexual immorality and all types of things. It was just a really kind of a sick, twisted thing. And now there had become conflict between the church and pagan people in the community. And because of that, between Paul and the Corinthians, the Corinthian church and the Jewish, the Judaizers, and between the church and pagans, there had become conflict between the church and city leaders because there were uprisings, there were fights, there were disputes. And what was beginning to take place was those city leaders were throwing Corinthian church leaders into jail, persecuting them. And so you could see why there would be a natural desire for the Corinthian church to reconcile with those around them because life was difficult when you were in conflict with those around you. Some ways that they tried to reconcile, and these are all outlined in the first book he wrote to the Corinthian, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. There was theological compromise. Okay, fine, we'll back off on the Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. We'll back off on the fact that you don't work for salvation, but you trust for it, and God saves you through forgiveness and cleansing, not through works. We'll back off on that, and we'll embrace another theology that says you have to be religious. But that didn't work. They were still hated by the Judaizers. They tried to sacrifice their loyalty to Paul. Okay, fine, we won't associate with Paul anymore. You know, we know you guys don't like him. We won't associate with Paul anymore. Well, that wasn't enough. That didn't work because they were still persecuted because they bore the name Christian. 
They tried something else. They tried to blend in morally. Well, that didn't work because it left themselves feeling dirty. None of these work. But what happens in between the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there is this repentance that takes place. And reconciliation had begun to take place. And Paul's aim is to see it flourish even more. Do you remember back, for those of you that were here, one of the very first things Paul says in this letter, he says, there's a man in your church who was part of the whole conflict and part of the whole compromise. And you've kind of called him to task and you've held him accountable. And he's come around full circle. He's repented. He knows what he did was wrong. And you guys still are casting him out. I'm telling you, invite him back into your fellowship as if nothing had ever happened. Completely restore him because the burden he's carrying is too great. And so that had begun to happen. There had begun to be some reconciliation with others in their town. And Paul says, I see reconciliation now. Why? Not because you've tried so hard to appease everyone, but what you've done is you've made sure that you were back reconciled with Heavenly Dad through the gospel. And now, miraculously, because of reconciliation with Dad, you are now being reconciled to one another. So that's the historical aspect of this passage. And he talks about reconciliation. Let's talk about the theological part of this. What about God? What did he do? I want to talk about the source of reconciliation. You understand the need for reconciliation? When there is conflict between men, it's not because they have different opinions or different likes or dislikes or different perspectives. We can get along and be different. The reason there's conflict between men is because there's conflict between men and God. See, when we have a conflict with God, then we're always going to have conflict with men because of sin, because of our selfishness. And conflict with men is a direct result of men being in conflict with Heavenly Dad. Paul reveals that the source of reconciliation was the gospel and the work of Christ in the hearts of men that he makes brand new. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. The things you've done in the past are not held against you anymore. It's a fresh start. That sounds like reconciliation. So with that in mind, I want to go through a couple of things about the love of Christ and what it does and why the love of Christ can give us the ministry of reconciliation and why the love of Christ can reconcile us to each other. First of all, the love of Christ controls us. Ephesians 2.10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Even that faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift. Not by works or else you'd be able to brag. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we trip over. You see how the love of Christ controls us? Once we are right with Heavenly Dad through the gift of faith, which is a miracle that we're able to believe in this message, once we believe in this gospel, we are made a new creature and we are given a new life. And what God does is he throws good works in front of us that we cannot avoid. That's how the love of Christ controls you. Does that make sense? And then watch this. The next thing the love of Christ does, it regenerates us. We become a new creation. Regenerate means fresh life, new life. What does it mean that old things are passed away? It means he puts to death 
the old man, the old man that was full of sinfulness, that was full of arrogance, that was full of conflict with other people, he puts that man to death and births a new man within us, a new spirit within us. And when that happens, here's what's so great about it. Our sins, according to today's passage, are not counted against us since that man is gone. He doesn't exist anymore. We are new creatures. In Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 22, Paul writes this to another church in Colossae. Here's what he says. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking about Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, there's the word reconcile again, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. You get that? You see how that? When you're not in reconciliation with God, you are hostile in mind. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you see the miracle of that? People who are hostile and sinful through the blood of Christ and his death and resurrection, he makes us blameless and presents us to God and says, see, they're perfect. Nothing in the past is held against them. That's because he regenerates us, makes us a new person. You know what else the love of Christ does for us? It reconciles us to God. I love this passage in Romans chapter 5, 10 and 11. For if we were en- for while we were enemies, while we're fighting, while it's going on, in the midst of the darkest conflict that we can imagine, while that's going on, it's not while we were enemies and then we started making progress, then we started doing better, and then we started coming around and we were fighting less, then God said, okay, now I'll work in your life. No, that's not what he says. While we're at the absolute worst spot, While we were right here, we were enemies, we were fighting, we were in conflict, we were in darkness, we were in sin. While that was going on, we were reconciled. Doesn't that blow you away? It wasn't, well, we weren't quite good enough yet, but once we start really getting our stuff together for about two weeks, three weeks at a time, then God changes us. No. He goes right to the darkest point. And reconciles us to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Isn't that amazing? You know what else the love of Christ does for us? Not only does it reconcile us to God, It makes us reconcilers. Do you understand what that means? That means at this point, once God makes you a new creation, old things are passed away, all things are become new. We are now have nothing in our past held against us. In our darkest point, he came in, regenerated us, made made us alive, reconciled us to God. And now we go from that immediately to being people who can help others reconcile. In today's passage, in verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And what is that message? It's the gospel. In the children's moment today, I talked about the fact that when conflict occurs, 
The way it ends is when fault is admitted. Brokenness, humility, I need forgiveness, I'm a sinner, I need cleansing. And at that moment, conflict is crushed. And that gives us the message of reconciliation. So, with all that being said, I've given you some good history. I've given you some good theology about how God reconciles us to himself. Now, let's look at the devotional application of today's passage. Don't be distracted. Some of what I'm about to say is going to be quite offensive. See, this is part of the problem. That the world seeks reconciliation by religion. It seeks it by philosophy. It seeks it with social justice. Sometimes it seeks it through money, through reparations. But we seem to, by nature, put the message of the gospel on the back burner. It's our natural instinct to try to bring about reconciliation on our own. But I got news for you. Attempts to achieve reconciliation that don't start with reconciling us to heavenly dad are fruitless. In fact, they'll only create more division. So don't be distracted by man-made religion. You know, if we can just forget about our different beliefs, we'll all be reconciled. How's that worked out in 8,000 years of human history? I mean, not only is there conflict between Christians and Muslim and sometimes Jewish people and Hindu and every, there's conflict between people who believe in atheists. I mean, it just happens. Don't be distracted by trying to bring about reconciliation by man-made religion that gives you a list of do's and don'ts and how you're supposed to conduct yourself. That's not where reconciliation comes from. Reconciliation comes from the gospel and forgiveness and cleansing through the work of Christ on the cross. Don't be distracted by religion. Don't be distracted by politics. This is a big one. You know, if we can just get our philosophical, economic philosophy in power, we'll all be reconciled. If we can just be better capitalists, if we can just be better socialists, if we have single-payer health care, or we have free market health care, have taxes higher, taxes lower, whatever we can do, if we just get our philosophical politics in place, we'll all be reconciled. If we can just get our guys on the Supreme Court, we'll all be reconciled. If we can just pass this law or overturn that law, we'll all be reconciled. America will be a better place. Legislating morality will not produce reconciliation between men or between man and God. If we can just get this generational politician elected into office, it'll bring the country together, right? I put in my notes, LOL. <laughs> Let me tell you something, and I'm going to make sure I'm very balanced here. It's very evident the key to reconciliation was not President Obama. It would not be Ted Cruz. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Gary Johnson. It's not Jill Stein. It's not the GOP or the DNC or the Libertarians. So don't get worked up. None of them can do it. 
I don't care how soaring their rhetoric is, how great their promises are. No human has the power of reconciliation. None of them. I don't care how liberal, how conservative, how much money they want to give away, how much money they want to let you keep. They are powerless to bring reconciliation. All of them. No matter what policies, no matter what soaring rhetoric, they will all fail. Here's the last one. Don't be distracted by social justice. Now, don't get me wrong. Although some aspects of social justice may be a result of the work of the love of Christ controlling us. Do you understand what I mean by that? The love of Christ controls us, gives us good works that we trip over. So sometimes there are things that look like social justice that are a result of reconciliation. Social justice is not the seed of reconciliation. Social justice is powerless to bring about reconciliation. In some ways, all social justice can do is feed the giver's desire to appease guilt and the taker's desire to appease what they feel like they're entitled to. So don't get me wrong. Social justice can be a part of reconciliation, but it is not the cause, if you follow me. In fact, social justice, just like a politician, just like religion, is powerless to bring about reconciliation. According to Paul, reconciliation occurs through the work and control of the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Reconciliation starts and ends, and here's a little political. It starts and ends with bipartisan brokenness. Not bipartisan compromise. Bipartisan brokenness. It says, man, we're sinners. We are not right with God. We're trying it all on our own. And when both sides have a brokenness and the gift of faith, which is a miracle, do you understand that? The gift of faith is not something you can summon on your own because you're so good. The gift of faith is from God. That's where reconciliation starts. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. But you know what else? The ministry of reconciliation isn't always about making peace. Sometimes reconciliation is about keeping peace, never allowing the conflict to begin in the first place. Does that make sense? I'm going to give you an example. Some of you may not be aware of this, but this is a PCUSA church, Presbyterian Church, United States of America. I've also worked in a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America. Many people don't realize this, those denominations don't like each other very much. One was born out of the other, I think, in the late 70s. They don't like each other. There's been conflict over a lot of different things. So with that in mind, I want you to keep this perspective. And I want to fast forward from the 70s to 2016. I had a conversation with Pastor Steve about two and a half months ago. We were talking about grace life and some other things. I said, Steve, you and I are so different. Our styles, some of our theology, our philosophy. 
how have you been able to tolerate me for four years? And he said something to me that had an impact. He says, yes, we're different. He says, but there's this common love of Jesus and love for people that has made all that other stuff in my mind melt away. See, here is an example of the power of the love of Christ controlling his people and keeping us reconciled with God first and then each other in a ways that makes our differences less important. So you see there's three logos up there, right? Church of the Palms, there's Grace Life, and there's Covenant Life. Church of the Palms is a PCUSA church. Covenant Life is a PCA church. Conflict fighting, doing it like that. And there's Grace Life in the middle, a non-denominational church that we're starting in October. This PCA church, this PCUSA church, are collaborating together to launch Grace Life. Isn't that awesome? See, there's an example where there didn't need to be reconciliation. There was an example where reconciliation was protected in the first place. And why? Because the love of Christ was controlling men on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Men who said, you know what? Denomination second, kingdom first. People ask me, what denomination is grace life? Non-denominational. Really? How's that? Isn't covenant life? Yeah. Well, isn't church of Mount? Yeah. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Now think about this. Think of the different types of people that grace life is going to be able to reach that covenant life could never reach. Church of the Palms could never reach. And there's people that we could never reach at grace life on either side of that. But because we have people in leadership who are willing to be controlled by the love of Jesus, they put their, their differences aside, making the gospel the primary central focus, the message of hope and redemption, and they come together and collaborate with people and money to create a new worship community. You understand, that's unheard of, right? 90% of the time, something like this would end poorly. I remember meeting with Steve a year ago, before any of this Grace Life talk had started. I said, Steve, I'm really concerned that one day it's going to end bad. <laughs> he says, why do you say that? I said, I don't know, probably because I've been fired three times. It's always ended bad for me. And he said, it's not going to end bad. And then I was talking to Ken Aldrich, who's the pastor at Covenant Life. I said, I'm afraid it's going to end bad. And he says, I bet you it doesn't. Do you understand what this is doing? This is reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation that's done in a way that makes our community take notice. And people say, what? Both churches are helping? In a way that increases the reach of the true seed of reconciliation, the gospel and the kingdom of God. See, this Right here is the type of reconciliation that transforms lives. Amen? This is the type of reconciliation that takes people out of darkness into light, connects them with Heavenly Dad in a non-religious, real, personal, practical way, and enables them to be reconcilers. 
a reconciliation based on the love of Christ that is permeating, transforming, and controlling our hearts with the gospel. Because I promise you, and the band can come up, because I promise you, reconciliation without the gospel, extremely frustrating, totally pointless waste of time. If it doesn't reconcile men with God, it won't reconcile men with other men. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And it's not us versus them. It is the love of Christ controlling us as we trip over good works that transform hearts and connect men to Heavenly Dad.